Welcome to Highly Sensitive Money, where we dive deep into personal narratives and societal issues around finance through the lens of a highly sensitive person and social justice. I'm your host, Diana Yanez. Today, we're exploring the intricate relationship between childhood experiences, sensitivity, and economic disparities in my own life. Hola, hola. So the first expert we're going to interview on highly sensitive money is moi, c'est moi. It's me. Today's episode is me sharing who I am as a money expert. And you'll see that every time I have an expert come on, the goal is to have five questions. Be the structure of the conversation. Of course, I'll add things. I'll ask other questions. I'll share their background. But this structure is meant to kind of ground the conversation and for you to see how are people doing each of these things differently. The first question, what was the financial background of your childhood and do you see it continue to impact you? Today? My earliest money memory is one of the best ways that I can share what my financial background was like as a child. So I remember being around eight or nine years old and I was in visiting my family. I was visiting my cousins and I am an older daughter. I was with my older cousin who's just a year older than I am and he's a boy. And it was us two with our younger siblings. And I think he, I think he had both of his younger sisters and I had my younger brother. So it was five of us. And we go up to the counter. Um, we're at a little, you find these little corner stores everywhere. And my cousin, my older cousin says, you pay. And you could see it. if you're watching the video right now, you can kind of see my face be like, what? I pay? Because I was like eight or nine years old, right? And I was the one that had to pay. And I didn't understand why. I don't even know if I did pay or if I didn't pay. I can guess that I did pay though. I definitely guess that I did pay because I remember seeing him like 10 years later when I was 18, 19 years old. I was coming home for Christmas vacation from college and I was going to see him and I spent all my money before I saw him. I bought myself shoes. I bought myself more shoes. I love shoes. So that when I saw him and he asked me for anything, I was like, there's no money. So <laughs> I didn't know how to say no as an eight-year-old. And as an 18-year-old, I didn't know how to say no either. And I think I continue to struggle with that of like, I've eventually learned how to say no so that, and that, and it's really important to know how to say no, because that makes your yes more valid, right? Because if I bought those things when I was eight years old, it wasn't because I was being generous. And as an eight-year-old, nine-year-old, I thought, okay, I have to pay. And I remember having the sense of guilt as a child because I knew that my parents had more. I knew that they had more than my than most of my cousins. Most of my cousins were born in Mexico on my mom's side. And that's the side of the family I grew up with. So it was always kind of uncomfortable. And then things shifted a lot when I was 12 years old. And I moved to Montrose, which is in Glendale, which is in the Valley in Los Angeles. So I moved from a tiny town called Calexico on the border with Mexico, the U.S., the California-Mexico border. I moved to Montrose in Glendale, in the Valley, in LA. <laughs> so I was a Valley girl very briefly while I was in middle school. I realized that I was in a different um, culture because everyone that looked like me that had dark hair and white skin was Armenian instead of Mexican. And I was no longer the wealthy kid. I remember 
because we were my family was like the wealthier of the families we weren't super wealthy but we were well off like we had a big house we had my parents had multiple cars they were doing really well in their business they sold horses at a swap meet so I worked I grew up with a lot of manual labor my mom will say I didn't but I grew up with more manual labor than most but definitely less than her when she was a kid so when I moved to Montrose I, some of my best friends, and I've actually shared this with them, I, they went to Italy for spring break. And my parents had gone to Italy. They'd they'd actually taken a trip to Europe for the first time when my mom turned 35 and they were celebrating their 15th year anniversary, right? So we weren't poor. My parents were going to Italy, but we weren't going to Italy for spring break, you know, (laughs) when I was 12. It was just a very different world. And that really helped me. Looking back, I can see why it was just this kind of like, whoa, what a shocking new world. Another thing that I also remember, again, that big transition when I was 12 and we moved to this new city, was that I was the kid on the subsidized food and most kids were not. Whereas in Calexico, the town, the agricultural town where I grew up, everyone was in subsidized food. And I now see that like I was at the bottom, at the top of the bottom. And then when we moved to Glendale, I was kind of at the bottom of the bottom. <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't bad. Like I think I still carry myself of someone. And I know I never experienced scarcity. I never experienced hunger as a child. I never experienced not having the right clothes, right? I never experienced like my parents being worried about rent. However, my dad did. And my dad's experience is his experience to share. But I know that those kinds of things come through generations, right? Um, The way that my family thinks about money is very security focused because of the many times that things have just been been wiped out from under them. So I grew up with those, that childhood of like being at the top of the bottom and then being at the bottom of the bottom. And how does that relate to my work now? I continue to be very sensitive, very confused around economic inequality because at the time I didn't have the words for it, but I knew that I carried guilt as an eight, nine, 10 year old. I carried guilt whenever I went home and And I knew that I had more than my cousins, my beloved, beloved cousins. And some of it, like we were always like, I was always giving my hand-me-downs to my cousins, but I think some of it was because they were younger. You know, (laughs) like I just happened to be the oldest one. (laughs) It wasn't that special, but I know that they were getting the handouts. I wasn't getting the handouts, but I was, I was the biggest girl. I was the oldest girl, not the biggest. So that has something to do with it. And I did get handouts from my, from my aunts and my mom as once I was big enough. So that's part of our culture of like nothing goes to waste, but it also sets a tone of, of like us being the ones to give. And for me, it carried guilt. I think for other people, it wouldn't carry guilt, but for me, it definitely did because it was confusing of like, why do I have this access when they don't? And there was some jealousy that would sometimes come. I'm thinking of a different side of my family. And this weird sense of I had something that I hadn't earned, which is true. I mean, I was 10, but they were also 10, right? Like we all had things. We all just landed into the environment that we landed into. And I was cognizant of it. 
at some level and uncomfortable with And when I was in Montrose, how was that for me money-wise? Sometimes I felt a little embarrassed. I think it was confusing, but I was really, and it was funny, like now as I'm older and I talk with my friends, the, the best friends that I had at the time, they actually had much wealthier family. So they didn't consider themselves wealthy. They were wealthy compared to me, but we were kind of like in a similar socioeconomic mindset because my parents had been very upwardly mobile and their parents had been very upwardly mobile too. So that's, that was what my childhood was like and how it affected. And I mentioned a little bit of how income inequality continues to affect me. It's actually the way that I've structured my work as a wealth manager. A third of my time I spend with high net worth individuals and certified financial planners on general serve the top four to 6% of wealth holders. So I spend a third of my time with that percentage, with that population, and the other two-thirds of my time, I spend it with everybody else, right? And my high net worth clients are subsidizing my lower net worth clients, but also my lower net worth clients are giving me meaning in a way that my high net worth clients wouldn't at that same level, you know, because the conversations are so different. And they're both very important, and it's always, always an honor to get to be in those conversations, And I believe the fact that I experienced being both at the top in some ways and recognizing that I wasn't at the top has helped me feel very comfortable in this kind of in-between world or, you know, like I can be in wealthy areas as well as I can be in poor areas. I generally feel more comfortable in lower economic situations because that's my parents' background. And sorry, I've got to bring up Blanquita. So she'll definitely be a regular appearance on this podcast. Okay, so that's that's question number one. The second question, what need related to money do you see in the world? And how does your social justice work address that need? And how can listeners help? So I, as I mentioned earlier, I work as both a wealth manager and a money coach. I also do client workshops. I do workshops in different organizations. This need that I see the most that I am most sensitive to, seeing people who've been victimized around money, who felt disempowered, helping them regain that power, helping them own their ability to say yay or nay to different financial situations. I respond to that need by creating tools that are easy to understand, by creating tools that speak to people with my mindset around social justice and around self-care like self-care is community care community care is self-care that's literally why there is a mobius strip that like infinity loop on the logo of this podcast because i see how interconnected we all are and i also have a hummingbird because i think i already mentioned it's my favorite animal but hummingbirds when they their little wings are actually ellipticals they're actually that mobius strip design that infinity loop design so they're just it's so meta i love that and i also help people create like make sure that their investments are aligned with their values that's an area of my work that i'm continuing to learn and that i'm becoming more experienced in but there are ways for money to do good things there's definitely money is a tool and it can be very effective and very helpful 
Um, unfortunately, like we do want to create systems because we're building the good as we're taking down the bad. It's like the just transition work that I've learned a lot about. And there's an organization I'm a part of called Radical Planners. And you'll see some of those people come on as guests on this show. But we talk a lot about like, what does a just transition look like? And I know that the, there's a lot of work that's been done that my activist friends are introducing me to. And my work specifically, like I work best with one-on-one. I love the work of like letting people come to their own conclusions, letting people see their own light because then it's them that does it. One of my first coaches, Steve Brody, talked a lot about mastery, right? Like being at the level that you're at until you're a master of it and, and letting that be the right path because life doesn't have to be so linear. And I give permission. I give people a lot of permission to just be where they are with money. That's the first step of like, this is actually the situation that I'm in. This is how it serves me and this is how it doesn't serve me. And how can listeners help? If you have money questions, if you are part of an organization that wants to have like deep conversations around money, hit me up. You can go to my website. The best place to find out more about me is my website, allthecolors.net. If you're looking for wealth management, go to strategysquad.com where I work with Nicole Middleton, who's the founder of Strategy Squad. But really, that's the best way to help me is to like let people know I exist, share my podcast with people, especially portions that are really helpful. And, and stay in the journey, stay in the conversation, even if we never meet. The third question, what connections related to money do you see thanks to your training, life experiences, or simply who you are that many other people miss? What do you pick up that others don't see? One of my favorite things, I think one of the places that I am very good at seeing that sometimes people just skip over is how uncomfortable it can be to be upwardly mobile. My parents were upwardly mobile and they loved it. They totally loved it. I was much more uncomfortable with it because there's this feeling of isolation. I also think as someone who is like pretty much bicultural, I feel as out of place in the U.S. as I feel out of place in Mexico. That's kind of how I think of it. (laughs) There's some, there's some kind of like, what would, what would my therapist call that? Persecution theme or something, right? That I don't, that I fit in either way. But that's kind of beautiful because I know that it's just like, what does it look like to be from two worlds, right? And when you're upwardly mobile, you experience that when you inherit a lot of money, when your business does really well, when all of a sudden you realize that you're just in a different economic stage than other people around you, when your family is able to afford you help that other people, that your peer group doesn't have, it can be really uncomfortable. There's actually a group that I'm part of called Wisdom and Money, and you'll you'll get to hear from the co-director, Rose Fierig, on that. And we do a lot of work on how do people from a culture of wealth and see anybody who lives in a first world country is from a culture of wealth. How do we help them make decisions from their mystical Christian heart? And another part of me that's very important is the fact that I am Quaker. So as a Quaker, I became Quaker in honor of a good friend who had passed, but I also joined, I started attending meetings just out of curiosity. I wanted to see the space. I am a high sensation seeker, so I'm always looking for new things to see. Uh, and that's, for anyone who doesn't know, that's a subset of highly sensitive people. They're also high, high sensation seekers, which can make it really confusing sometimes. And yet it can be really fun because it's kind of like you're chasing the high and the high is that much higher because you're highly sensitive. 
I don't know if you, if you were watching the video, you could see my face smiling right now. Big giant smile. But Quakers helped me feel rooted enough to start to tackle bigger questions, to start to tackle the, the systemic issues around money where I felt so disempowered. And that, and the fact that I experienced disempowerment, and there's other areas of my life where I've experienced very, very, very deep victimization, especially as a child where like choices were taken from me. It's, it makes me very sensitive to that. And I can see how privilege can actually be something that shackles you down, right? That's a need that I see that many other people don't see or that they dismiss, that they just say like, oh, what is it, poor rich guy? And it's true. There is something about having more when others don't or just even having more that can feel really painful. And I have a lot of empathy for that. Who supports me in my work? I mentioned the Quakers. I... I'm part of the Central Philadelphia monthly meeting. And although I live in Mexico City, so all of that work is virtual, I have a spiritual accountability group with them. And they have made it possible for me to really stay in this work. At the beginning of 2023, I was considering leaving this work. I was considering finding another way to provide for my income needs because I felt so disillusioned with what was possible. I felt overwhelmed by the amount of work needed. And slowly they've helped me regain that. They've helped me see how the work that I do is definitely my vocation. It's my calling. I love numbers. I love people. I love teaching. I love, I kind of love lifting the veil of gaslighting when people doubt their own experience. I love validating their experience. And I love like reflecting back to people how well they've done. I was kind of meant, I was like, created to be a money girl. <laughs> I literally feel that. I feel like I was like all of the skills that I have were to be a money coach. And my spiritual accountability group is what makes it all possible. I am also, I mentioned wisdom and money. So wisdom and money is works with people of wealth. And I consider myself as a person from a culture of wealth because I, I both work with wealthy people. And I acknowledge that because of my white skin, because of my being highly educated because of the fact that I'm a U.S. citizen, the place where I was born, the experiences I've had, I have a lot of access, a lot of privilege. And how do I work with that? How do I use that to the benefit of all? And how do I include myself in the benefit of all? Because that is a place where I struggle. I've had, I struggled with codependency when I was younger and it's something that still like continues to come back. And as someone who was socialized as a woman, it's so easy to put myself out of the equation. It's so easy to forget my own needs. So wisdom and money is a big part of my help around there. Radical planners, my radical planners, they really, they, they're they the activists that kind of freak me out. Like, honestly, I think they move too fast. I think radical planners move too fast. And at the same time, I need to be pushed. I need to be moved. I am always amazed by the depth of their analysis they help me stay rooted in this work, as does the firm I work for. Strategy Squad is part of Natural Investments, and I feel in awe that I get to be their colleague. I love the work that we do there. I love the way that we're just making more things possible with money. I have 
so many people that I that I feel supported by. I've been a little like I have a huge community in the financial planning services, financial planners primarily. There's there's the Latino group where I'm Ser, Ser Summit. So that's the Latino summit that's happening in October 2024 in San Diego. Dates TBD, but it's definitely San Diego, definitely October. So if you're a financial planner who's Latino, or are an ally of Latinos, or you're a Latino who would like to be a financial planner, please check us out. I'm also supported by Nazruddin. The Nazruddin community, they are the OG of innovators. So they've been pushing the boundaries since 1991 when my younger brother was born. (laughs) I'm sure before that, I don't really know what the date is. But they've helped me see how financial planning is a helping profession. And that's that's something that I've got from Elizabeth Jatan. So Elizabeth Jatan is a financial planner, one of the first that I met that I was just kind of awed by. I'm thinking of Sandra Davis. I am thinking like professionally, there are so many beautiful people who support my work, who support me and their example. And... I have really good friends. I have a beloved, beloved, beloved friend that I've known for 12 years. And she and I talk at least once a week about our ambitions, about how we see the world, about what we're cooking, like literally cooking. I I really like cooking. I don't think she likes it as much. She likes quilting. But she's a big part of my support. My dog my newly, newly obtained dog is actually my mom's dog. So she's more of my sister than my daughter because <laughs> um, she's really my mom's dog. But I'm taking care of her right now because my mom can't do it because of her work. Who else supports me? Literature. I love reading. There's so many like Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Continues to be a book that that influences me. I'm currently reading The Divine Comedy. Like I love everything that is mystical. I think trees, trees, hummingbirds, butterflies, dogs, babies. These are all things that help me see beauty and life. Dancing, salsa dancing, blues dancing, bachata, anything where I'm literally giving over control to someone else. Like they are the ones moving me. All of that is so supportive to me because it just helps me move and trust. You know, I just have to like dance to the music and trust that this person's not going to walk me into a wall. And if they do, they'll apologize. I literally had someone walk me into a wall a month or two ago and it was fine. It was fine. Like they, they didn't mean to, I was just, my stats were too big and it was fine. Who else supports me? I'm thinking of all the people in my profession who are pushing the, the status quo, who are saying we actually want more women in the field. We want more people of color. We want to start talking about, healthcare for everyone and childcare and, you know, all of the things that would really create a safety net, a social safety net that would make a difference. The last question, what is your refuge when you are overwhelmed? My journal. I have a journaling practice. Most mornings I will write a page or two, about 10, 15 minutes, sometimes longer, just to kind of get all the anxiety out of my head. Anything nature related. Being out in the mountains, being by water, being anywhere away from tree, from like people and, and instead being focused on trees is very, very supportive. And I have some very dear, beloved people who I will reach out to when I need support. So unfortunately, not many, 
not any of them are local. I just moved to my new city, Mexico City, in the past few months. I do have a lot of beloveds all around the world who I reach out to when I need refuge. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I look forward to hearing your questions. I look forward to sharing this with my beloved colleagues, my beloved friends who are the place where I seek refuge. I look forward to having you check out these resources that I'm talking about, these communities, right? I remember Adrienne Marie Brown. She's one of my very, very beloved faraway mentors, somebody that I look up to. She's, oh, actually... I think this was in her work, and it was also in the work of Edgar Villanueva in Decolonized Wealth. So in both of their works, I saw something that, that, that runs along the same lines, where we're not going to have a savior anymore, right? We're not going to have one person come and save us. Like the problems are so complex. They're so multifaceted. Society is so much more complex than it's ever been. And that's not a bad thing, right? It's just like, it's different. So having one person who has the answer is less likely. Instead, it's going to be communities. It's going to be collectives. Compare, think of the Black Lives Matter movement to Martin Luther King right? Martin Luther King was one person and there were many, many, many people who supported him, including Baynard Riskin, who is a Quaker. So I'm just going to pop in that if you want some support, Quakers have been doing it for a long time. But now it's much more about communities and collectives getting together. So if you hear me just talk about collectives, like check them out, right? If you're a financial planner, who's looking to become more activists or learn about activism, check out Red Planners, right? We have a newcomers meeting. If you're a person of wealth who wants to bring in your beliefs around everyone's right to well-being, check out Wisdom and Money. If you just want to get more into social justice and feel a lot of heartbreak, check out The Quaker. We don't have to go through anything alone. And it is a pleasure to be here with you. Also, reach out to me. I've got free heart-centered money calls, whether you are an organization looking for a workshop, where you are a happily married couple who's been having fights around money, where you're there, you are a newly graduating student who wants to figure out how to get things set up. I offer everybody a free 30-minute phone call. And it's not where I'm going to pitch you my services. It's really more that like sometimes just talking to a money expert for 30 minutes can make a huge difference. So check that out. I will include the links in this page. And yeah, see you. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Diana Giselle Yanez. Did you enjoy this episode? Please share this first season of Highly Sensitive Money with others. To learn how you can upskill your money relationship, join the newsletter over at allthecolors.net. That's A-L-L-T-H-E-C-O-L-O-R-S dot N-E-T for network. Take care and remember, you've got what it takes to feel good about your money.